When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I'm the editor of the TLS. The woman I only now see in video calls is dog-loving despiser of British desserts, Thea Lenarduzzi. Thea, hello. Hello, that's untrue. I love, I love many British desserts. But, you're le- but not bread and butter pudding? Not bread and butter pudding, no. But crumbles? Lamont? Sticky Le-Monde? toffee pudding? Not so much, No. It's also no, true that anyway, Brits invented the trifle, didn't they? The flamboyant, yeah, like, confused cousin of the fool. I don't like trifles. No, it's horrible. Yeah, so maybe we're both despisers of British desserts. Yeah, see, I've converted you without even trying. Yeah, no, exactly. You're uh, a traitor. Anyway, uh, well, that's, traitor that's, to your Britishness. That's the in, absolutely indisputable. Now, <laughs> we've had some good emails and tweets this week. And we are still in the literary pet world. Are you ready? But actually, before we get to our other literary pets, we should say that our marketing guru, Craig, has bought a, uh, or not bought, I don't know how he got it, a golden retriever puppy uh, called Oscar. And he's pretending just to get mentioned on this podcast that's named after Oscar Wilde, but we don't know if that's true <laughs> or not. Benef- anyway, benefit of the, the literary... Yeah, well, exactly. And he's part, he's part of the family, so we'll let him in. Now... Ira Silanpart runs a bookstore, I'm sorry if I've, I've mispronounced your name, runs a bookstore and gallery called Lanterna Magica in Helsinki. It's hopefully reopening this week, so if you do live in that city, go there, spend frivolously. Anyway, a few years ago, she bought four chickens and a cockerel and gave them literary names. The cockerel is named after the late Finnish poet, Penti Sarikoski, and the lady chickens were Dorothy Parker, Patty Smith, Virginia Woolf, and Sylvia Plath. Sadly, Patty and Dorothy have died, but, and this might be ironic, Virginia and Sylvia have survived. So there you go, Virginia Woolf and Sylvia Plath are chickens. And Sarah Sarakoski was pretty famous for his love life, for being unfaithful and having multiple marriages, so that fits. Did you in any way, after we got this email theatre, look up Penty Sarakoski? I did, of course I did. I oh, take well, this very seriously. I was just checking you didn't know, know it already. That would, be, <laughs> that, would be, that would be pretty cool. Anyway, uh, make sure you go to the Lanterna Magica bookshop in Helsinki. Um, okay, that's a high bar for literary pets. How about this one from Mona Bedoon from Michigan, 
who listens with wine while cooking dinner, and she and her husband have a no pets policy, but Mona recently began a sourdough starter called Emily Yeastinson. And says this, she's lovely. Her discard has been turned into delicious crackers, pancakes and banana bread. Thea, are you allowing Emily Yeastinson as a literary pet? I mean, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Also, it's a foodie. It's food and pets. That's the thing that gets that gets them into the pantheon. Yeah. The think. use of the word discard um, up, discard uh, upsets me slightly, but yes. Yeah, it, it, that does sound. <laughs> it sounds. That, that, I felt that sounded oddly clinical. <laughs> yeah, let's move on from that. Anyway, a couple more. Ajet Bachelder is a retired anthropologist who could no doubt account for the phenomenon of literary pets, whose own shelter is called Rebus after the Rankin books, and he recommends. The lockdown reading, listening to John le Carre is a good audio book experience. Apparently, he he's read by the books are read by the author himself. Aaron tweeted us with this tale. He and his wife got two kittens and called them Olivia and Viola. Viola escaped and was found by the vet, who informed them that she was in fact a he. So, a gender swapping cat named after a Shakespearean comedy, in which. A, a boy would play a girl playing a boy. That's a very literary pet indeed. But Aaron goes even further and he changed his name to Murakami as missing cats are indeed the staple of his novels. That's super literary. <laughs> uh, uh, Jane Gaylor grew up in 50s Chicago with a cat called Tiberius Dada. That's a good name. Do you think people are making this stuff, do you think people are making this stuff up now? It's I don't, I don't I, care I, if they are. Yeah. <laughs> <Quite> <laughs> anyway, frankly. she had five... She had five kittens called Copernicus, Ptolemy, Tycho, Galileo, and the fifth was called Ernie Banks, um, whose name, as Jane reminds us, uh, um, after a great Chicago baseball player of the era. And she also offers a tip for lockdown boredom. You ready for this, Thea? You've probably done this already. Open the Aeneid at random and pick a random line and it will tell your fortune. And she did that and got this, a distant cloud in black dust mounting up, a darkness rising. Did you know that Hadrian and Charles I did the same thing with the Aeneid? Uh, habitually or as a sort of one-off? As a one-off. When Charles did it, when Hadrian did it, it, the reference was to a king and so he knew he was going to be emperor. And when Charles did it, I think it was a reference to blood being seen in public, so he foresaw his own death. Oh dear. If you believe that sort of thing, which we will get to later in this podcast. Um, one more. Karen Moore from Texas emails with the heading Breakfast at Thea's. <laughs> with this foodie story, uh, she makes bo- bourbon cranberry sauce for Thanksgiving and uses the leftovers on morning oatmeal, which is porridge, I think. At Christmas, her husband replaced the labels on bottles of bourbon with ones that said Mrs. Moore's medicinal oatmeal additive and gave them away as presents. That's good, isn't it? <laughs> if you, I mean, it, would it be wrong to receive those? I don't know. Would sent? it compromise us? I don't know. No, I feel I feel not. I'm not a porridge. I'm not a porridge person. Are you a porridge person, dear? Um, not really. I mean, I, I I like it, but I find it makes me. I know it's supposed to sort of set you up for the day, but I, I find it makes me so hungry by the time lunch comes around. I almost can't can't bear it. I expected it to oh, have you, the opposite effect, but it, it doesn't. It makes me hungrier yeah, than uh, before. Um, yeah, it might get yeah, it might get your mes- metabolism. I mean, maybe anyway, maybe, uh, maybe the addition of the booze would help. It, it often does, in my experience. Um, <laughs> Uh, so you do know how to get in touch with us please do do it tweet at the TLS at Stig Abel at Thea underscore Leonard Dootsie or email at Stig me 
and I'm stig.able at the-tls.co.uk. Your contributions are all magnificent. We always want to hear of your literary pets, food suggestions and lockdown tips. I do hope you're also subscribing to the TLS, but if not, here's a cheap way to start. Use this special offer code, the-tls.co.uk forward slash podcast offer. That's podcast offer. Best price anywhere on the internet. Six issues for £5 or $5. Coming up this week, the academic and writer Hirsch Sawney has filed a lockdown dispatch from New Haven and will let us know about life near and in a university. He has a pet, maybe literary, called Pink, happily. I'm a bit sceptical, to say the least, about astrology. Typical Aries, you might say. Well, Lauren Castle this week reviews a book called A Scheme of Heaven, Astrology and the Birth of Science by Alexander Boxer and says this, astrology is one of the oldest, most complex, intellectually powerful of sciences. And Aaron Keeble will introduce us to the greatest novelist you may never have heard of, Percival Everett. Regular readers of the paper will know that during the global lockdown of the last couple of months, we've solicited little essays from people around the world. Goa, Western Australia, Bonn. We have uh, Colombia, Turkey and Sweden to come. We've also had a couple from the US, all of which have been lovely. And this week's is no exception. The novelist, academic and friend of the paper, Hirsch Sawney, has given an account of walking his dog around New Haven, the home, among other things, of Yale University. So we thought we'd catch up with him and talk also about the teaching life and its prospects. He joins us now. Hirsch, hello. Hi, Stig. Nice to hear your voice. Uh, Firstly, how are you doing and how is the new normal for you? I'm doing okay. I think as with everyone, there are, you know, there are good moments and bad moments. And I'm, I try to remain very mindful of the fact that I'm enjoying this lockdown with tremendous amounts of privilege. I get to pay people to deliver me my groceries and I don't actually have to go out and work and interact with other people. And I know for, for many that is not an option but all that's to say we're staying relatively sane in my household and being kind and loving to one another for the most part. Uh, and, and then there are glitches and pauses uh, when, you know, we, uh, everyone kind of goes a little nuts and everyone takes a turn going a little crazy. And that's when you choose to take the dog for a walk. And that's when I walk my lovely, <laughs> lovely dog who, who, who is getting so much attention these days that at night, instead of watching television with, with us, she goes to bed because she's had enough of us. <laughs> uh, you may know her. We're quite big on pets on this podcast. And we've just running a series of literary pets where people tell us the, their literary names for their pets. Yours dog's called Pink. That's not a, that's not a Brighton Rock thing, is it? There's no, what's the reason behind that name? Pinky uh, came to us with that name. She was named before we got her, uh, but but she is very small. So I wouldn't be surprised if she was, you know, named for that tiny digit on the hand, or if she was named for the cartoon Pinky in the Brain. Oh, uh, that's almost literary, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I just read a great novel with the dog with a dog at its center, The Friend by Sigrid Nunez, and I, I just was blown away by the power of this book. And she references J.K. Ackerley's book about his dog uh, all the time, which sounds, which sounds really like an intense read about canine love. We should do a thing about dogs in fiction theatre, shouldn't we? Because I'm trying, I'm trying to think of... Um, I'm always struck by uh, Byron had a dog called Boatswain, and Virginia Woolf wrote yeah. a biography of Elizabeth Barrett Browning's dog. Slush. 
there's a there is a piece to be written hirsch maybe you're the man to write it about <laughs> we're recording your answer now remember hirsch <laughs> yeah, yeah this is yeah. this is binding i have my lead for it already when uh <laughs> when my wife first read the unbearable lightness of being a couple of decades ago she was so moved by the evocation of the dog that's at the center of the novel that she decided to give up eating meat though that that giving up eating meat only lasted a couple of months but but it was something well, she doesn't eat dogs, I'm sure, so. <laughs> no, no, not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. All right. Um, when you're walking your dog around uh, your town, New Haven, is what you talk about, and you're a teacher at Wesleyan University, but Yale, I, I didn't realise this, Yale sort of uh, dominates the town where you live. And the sort of town and gown relationship isn't necessarily entirely a positive one, is it? it it's definitely fraught, you know. Uh, I mean, Yale... Uh, has a whole lot of wealth, as I talk about in the piece, and, and New Haven uh, is kind of, in some ways, an archetypal Rust Belt city in, in the northeastern United States, meaning, you know, during the 19th and first part of the 20th century, it had a lot of uh, wealth and decent, you know, unionized jobs, thanks to manufacturing, uh, and those all disappeared in the second half of the 20th century, uh, which led to scenes of the type of urban blight that have been depicted in all sorts of books and novels. And uh, and yet Yale has only become wealthier and wealthier uh, during the same period so that now it has uh, an endowment of $30 billion and generates $4 billion in revenue each year. And meanwhile, you know, New, the New Haven public school system is just cash strapped and, uh, and it really could use an injection of, of serious cash. And how much com- does it contribute to the common good with its vast wealth? Does it basically say, we'll make our tuition free to those who need it? Does it make use of these billions of dollars uh, in your view? So Yale certainly, uh, yeah, Yale, uh, and, and you know, all of these largely institutions, they, they do do positive things uh, for, uh, for their host cities and, 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 and for the world and, and you know, carrying out all sorts of research. And uh, they work hard to, to have diverse, diverse faculties, diverse student population, and, 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 and they've made great gains uh, in these realms. And, and they even, Yale, uh, as I wrote about, does give a voluntary contribution to the city of New Haven of $11 million each year. And, and they're certainly under no obligation to give more. But one of the big points of tension is that uh, since these institutions are classified as nonprofit organizations, they don't pay any property tax. So Yale owns $2.5 billion of property in the city of New Haven that isn't taxed. Meanwhile, middle class and, and working class homeowners are, are paying, you know, exorbitant taxes to the city. I mean, the, the tax rate in the city of New Haven is much, much uh, higher than it is in London, for example. People feel that's unfair when the university is essentially a profit-making institution. I mean, you know, generating all sorts of cash and has, has a large hospital network uh, that makes tons and tons of money each and year. are these big universities like Yale recession proof therefore because we could be you know let's hope we're not staring down the barrel of a depression a 10 or 5 or 10 year depression but we are going to be suffering a recession how long is yet to be understood are these big institutions recession proof or are they looking around fearfully like lots of other people they're all worried right now and, and you know the again talking about so where I work, Wesleyan, it is a very eminent institution, but it's but it's operating on a much smaller scale and has a smaller endowment. Now, what I'm talking about right now is, is these really big places that have 
endowments in the, in the multiple billions. Um, they're worried and they're doing lots of planning and they're enacting hiring freezes. Uh, but at the end of the day, you have to consider that some of these institutions have been around for 300 years and they've withstood world wars and great depressions uh, and, you know, uh, pand previous pandemics uh, and, and civil wars in the United States. Uh, and they have so much money that, that one would think that, you know, that they'll be able to, to shoulder whatever's coming their way. One notes in their press releases and, and in the journalism that's been coming out uh, about how the how the academic institutions are handling the, the pandemic and, and the ensuing economic downturn, that they're worried and they are scared. If we think about the future of teaching being increasingly online, and certainly um, a couple of weeks ago, we ran a piece by uh, Benjamin Markovitz about teaching remotely. And a lot of our, a lot of our writers are doing precisely that. They're, they're teaching their classes via Zoom or, or whatever. In a sense, then, that means that universities that make people, students pay exorbitant fees for for teaching and for the university experience, that might not really add up and you can't really say that that's that great. Or they could then just roll it out and make it so that you could live anywhere in the world and, and, and be educated by Yale or, or Princeton or, you know, Cambridge or Oxford or whatever. You know, I, I think there's, there's, there's multiple questions. There's... there's there's the question of how this virus is going to, how this pandemic is going to impact higher education. Uh, and, and then there's then there's the question throughout the world, but certainly in the United States, is how is higher education going to just cure itself from its various illnesses and ailments? Uh, the the most paramount of those being it's how expensive it is and how how there's such you know tremendous unequal access to it. In, in this country and, and throughout the world, I would argue. Um, so yeah, I mean, in many ways, the pandemic has forced mm -hmm. us to think about uh, mm -hmm. issues of access that were just already beleaguering the system uh, as it stood. Now, I'm just interested because I was thinking that if I was 18 years old now and I could go to, to Wesleyan or could go to Yale or could go to, to Oxford or Cambridge and spend the money in this country, you know, get, a, get a loan, spend some money, get in debt, or pay up front and have to in the US and pay a vast amount of money to go and be taught on a Zoom camera by someone who doesn't really want to be teaching that way, not have any of the conviviality of the university experience, the, the extracurricular stuff, the bonding, the chance to meet people, the chance to, 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 to meet people from different walks of lives and all, all of the things that make university university. I would not go to university this year if I was 18, I would, I would cancel it for a year. I would just try not to do it because to me, spending thousands of pounds or thousands of dollars to, to be bored in a Zoom class makes no sense whatsoever. So if I'm a university and I'm selling a product, that product is dramatically weakened to the point of being not useful to me. And presumably that's a, a problem that universities have got to confront. I, I think they're literally... Uh you know they're 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 facing that very problem uh, and and wondering what's going to happen. And I think right now uh, many of the institutions uh, are are especially you know you know the more what they're called competitive ones or, or elite ones are betting on the fact that people a lot of the people will come no matter what. And and I think there might be this sentiment out there that if if they're not open come September, then young people, it's not as if young people will be working or volunteering or participating in some sort of gap year. They'll be in their parents' basement, in which yeah. case 
they're, they're going to be willing to to fork out a certain amount of money to to do something you know to advance their lives in some way uh i don't know if you caught it yet but some big news this morning in terms of higher education in the states uh was that notre dame university uh announced that they are going to be open uh and they're going to open early in august and have a full and are planning to have a full in-person semester between august and mid-november or late november around thanksgiving uh and they've they they, they feel like they could get there testing and uh and contact tra- tracing in place uh by august in order to be able to do this um there is in your piece hirsch a note of optimism which connects into all of what we've already been talking about um you you have you have great praise for for a local politician i, I love it when a writing assignment uh forces me to do a little homework and to rethink you know my own thoughts because i, I wasn't being mendacious at all in the piece when I when I wrote that I was initially skeptical of, of New Haven's new mayor. I, I am generally skeptical about politicians, and I I was one of the people who wondered about his outsider credentials and you know uh, just the notion of having this kind of uh, privileged white man who's not from New Haven uh, govern a city in which the vast majority of people are are poor people of color. Uh, and when I did my homework, it was I was just impressed. And and, and then I started watching these press conferences uh, that Mayor Elliker, uh, our new mayor, has been giving every day. And they just stand in such marked contrast to what we're seeing <laughs> from the federal government every day in the United States. That it was just it was just heartening to think that okay, there are there are some people in charge somewhere that are taking their jobs seriously and trying to be ethical and conscientious. Uh, let me tell you, uh, we need to like feeling that is so important here in the states because i think you know the whole world is is flailing and 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 feeling such intense uh emotional uh and physical upheaval right now but but we have this extra dose of it here you know with 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 the clown on top uh in washington dc it really is so utterly disheartening and more than and, and it's obviously laughable and it's good to watch alec baldwin do the jokes and it's great to watch stephen colbert be funny about it but but it's at this point just truly deeply existentially frightening and depressing uh so yeah the mayor of new haven is standing in contrast to that right now and i and i salute him for that Uh, before you go um we always like to ask people for lockdown recommendations so a book maybe an old familiar book or a new book or film or a tv show you've watched read or or experienced during lockdown that you think might lighten all our collective minds uh, I've been reading uh, Samantha Schweblin's, uh, the Argentine writers. I don't even know if I'm saying her name right. Uh, Samantha Schweblin. Uh, I've been reading her very surreal, intense, immersive short stories. Uh, there's a collection called Birds in the Mouth. Uh, and, and, I'm, and, and it's like they're painful and disturbing and you can't put them down. And I actually feel like they'd be something nice to read aloud with someone else, though I haven't done something like that in many, many years. In terms of the watching, I find myself weirdly, and I'm confessing something here, kind of gravitating towards filmic texts that bring me back to days of American exceptionalism, as, as we see the whole notion of American exceptionalism just being totally obliterated. So I watched... Uh, Glory, uh, the 1980s Civil War film starring yeah. Denzel Washington, and I've and another film about American exceptionalism, or another television series. I've been watching the new Michael Jordan uh, uh, ESPN television Dance. series, The Last Dance, and I haven't watched a single sporting event in the past 15 years of my life. But but this is just 
delicious candy. Thea, I can't believe you. I bet you've not seen that, Thea, have you? I haven't, but um, let me just tell you, while, while you were talking about Samantha Schweblin, um, I just looked up to the bookshelf in front of me and I plucked Fever Dream by her. Have you read that, Hirsch? Oh. I have not read that yet, but I want to. Yes, you should Thea, do. It's well incredible. Done. It's really good. So I recommend that back to you. <laughs> okay, I can. I can't get enough about Michael Jordan stuff. I, I find him just a um, a fascinating character, and uh, it's a great series, isn't it? And also, they've timed it brilliantly uh, for lockdown because people can't get sports. Uh, a thing about sport and about leadership and about madness really kind of is is very gripping, isn't it? Yeah, and about the United States being admirable and and having things to you know to <laughs> to, to 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 envy inside of it. Um, it's funny the. The New York Times uh, has written like 45 articles about it because they have nothing else to write about in their sports <laughs> yeah. pages right now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Hirsch, well, I'm glad we'd say we've been, we've got plenty to fill our, our paper and we're always glad to have you in it and on the show as well. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you both very much. Take care. Have a good rest of your day. Um, one of my favorite Michael Jordan stories is uh, he was in the, the American national team, the dream team, and someone had said in public, that, he w- that there was another player on the dream team that was better than Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan is a sociopath, competitive sociopath. No, <laughs> one, can be be- no one can be better than him. Um, he used to do things like with his teammates, he would uh, they'd bet on everything as long as he won. And so he'd bet whose bag would come out of the plane first. And then he would go and bribe the guards in the airport, the baggage handlers, to put his bag out first so he would win the bet. But he was, th- he was playing with this guy, someone had said he's, old, he's as good as Michael Jordan. Um, and he just spent the week, even though they were teammates, destroying him in practice, just beating him over and over and over and over again, to the point where one day this guy came in wearing two left shoes <laughs> and didn't change them because he was so terrified of being laughed oh at by God. Michael Jordan. And this guy was like a multi-million pound, like the third best player in the world or the second best player in the world. And because he dared to be compared to Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan just showed that he could obliterate him at will. But he didn't even make the comparison. Someone else did. That, no, exactly. Well, this that's, is tragic. It's it. And He's not a well he did, man. No, the other thing he did was he would, and you see this quite often with American sportsmen and sports people in general, I think, that if there isn't a slight, they, they, they find a slight because they've, yeah. they've got to find something. So they'll sure. find something somewhere that, oh, you, you said you didn't believe in me. I'll go and prove you yeah. wrong. Well, I suppose but it's I've like the weighing in kind of thing yeah but but when you see i mean so when you read anything about him he was just it it was it's an incredible figure and that's why i think this this show is so good because it's basically a sort of shakespearean show about basketball Hmm. which is intriguing which is lovely here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There are just a few things that we can take for granted in the grand scheme of things, that night follows day is the obvious example, or that if you forget your umbrella or wear suede in Britain, you will be rained on. But another, surely, is that someone given the first name Percival will grow up to be famous. That's just the kind of world we live in. And yet, Percival Everett, a poet, novelist, painter and professor at the University of Southern California, is not famous, or rather not as famous as he probably should be. Which isn't to say that his talents, displayed in often weird and wild fashion across some 30 books since the early 1980s, have not been recognised. There have been plenty of honours. But had you heard of him? Ask your friends. Had they? Maybe the more on-pulse ones, sure, but that's the point. While interest in Everett has intensified over recent years, especially in America where his novel So Much Blue led to a flurry of interviews and profiles a few years ago, in the UK it seems, we are playing catch-up. Aaron Keeble, who in this week's Fiction Pages reviews Everett's latest novel, Telephone, is with us now to help to help bring us up to speed. Hello, Aaron. Hello, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. So Percival Everett's oeuvre is, I mean, it's incredibly diverse. Can you sort of give us a sense of, of the range, maybe plucking out some of the works that have most kind of struck you? The first thing to say is that as, and you know, as you've mentioned, over more than 30 years, there have been more than 30 books, uh, 21 novels, four collections of poetry, four collections of stories, a children's book. But I guess the best way to kind of give a sense of the range of this uh, extraordinary output is to talk about genre, because Everett's kind of unusual in, in the sense that he has moved across popular and literary genres, writing westerns police procedurals, as well as campus novels and domestic novels. And even within the genres that Everett writes in, like the Western, there's a kind of real range as well. So his Western Wounded from 2004 is very different from, say, God's Country, which came out in 1994. Very different in tone and style. One is earnest, uh, and the other has a kind of conspicuous metafictional conceit or experiment. And even in novels like So Much Blue, which you mentioned, it kind of moves from genre mode to genre mode within the novel. So it's very interesting what he what he's doing there. Um, and despite all this kind of divergence in genre, there is a sense of coherence and, and unity in this body of work as well. So what kind of consistencies, or, you know, what unifying elements are there that, that we might point out? There are a lot of little things, little leitmotifs and minor preoccupations that bring the work together. 
the kinds of things that are really gratifying to readers. But I guess to start, I mean, Everett's really interested in Western life and ranching and fishing in animals and nature. In an antithetical uh, sense, he's, he's also really interested in campus life, uh, drawing on his own um, experiences in, in both these interests. So he's interested in the you know, absurdities of the U.S. university system and the tenure system. Across his works, there's a real interest in isolation and loneliness. And there are a raft of really interesting and compelling characters, mostly men, who are good, kind of decent people struggling to do the right thing and often making mistakes or, or failing to act when called upon. And I think that for me personally, this is, this is what really draws me to his work. I mean, the experimentation and trickery of his work is wonderful, but I just love his really human characters that are compelling and convincing, I think. I'm just interested in that because I, people who listen to this podcast will know that I kind of have a vague aversion, maybe not even a vague aversion, to tricksy postmodernism. You know, writing about writing about writing, uh, I find very frustrating. And um, the fear of uh, when you see a, a novelist is experimental, you, you feel that it will be more about him than about the reader. But do, do you feel that, that when... when Maybe when he's even doing that, but certainly when he's not doing that, there's a, there's a, there's a sort of humanism that, that people who don't like postmodernism can get into. First thing I'd say to that is that with Everett's experimentation, there's a real sense of purpose there. I mean, and many of your listeners uh, and readers will know his, his, perhaps his most famous novel, Erasure. And there is a kind of central metafictional conceit there. But it is really purposeful and deliberate. And it comes hand in hand with a story that is really affecting and humane about a person kind of unraveling uh, amidst a family crisis. I probably share your your aversion to, to that kind of experimentation, but I, I don't think, I think with Everett, it's, it, it's different. I think there is a real sense of purpose and design. And it, it's often kind of in tandem with really moving and affecting human stories. Well, it sounds in, in certain respects, I mean, apart from the kind of the maximalism that seems to come across in, in what you're describing, it sounds like there's some kind of similarity with someone like David Foster Wallace or or maybe even Pynchon, where there's kind of like these good, like really solid storytelling, but all of these other layers upon layers and acrobatics around it. So you can almost read it on various levels. Yeah, I mean, I think I would broadly agree with that. I think a lot of Pynchon readers particularly um, are also Everett, Everett readers. You know, and Pynchon is interested in genre as well, but probably uh, genre, you know, this sustained use of different genre modes is might is what might set Everett apart from those novelists. Mm. Most of the work of Everett's work examines uh, racism and it has this kind of like push and pull at it in, 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 at the heart of it, it seems, because at the same time as examining it, it also wants to resist the urge to be defined by it both the work and the author can you can you sort of give us a sense of how that how that works on the page i think everett is certainly really great at challenging readers assumptions uh, and in some novels he's withheld uh, any racial designations for characters until later in the text to kind of make readers think about the kind of racial assignments they've made in their own heads and then you know the novels and the work are full of characters who are defined by their race by other characters and they show how damaging and dehumanizing this kind of stereotyping and assumption making can be in very different and unexpected ways 
So a great example of this is the the comic novel I Am Not Sidney Poitier from 2009. Great title, great novel, and uh, one that the the brilliant UK indie press Influx has republished this year. In fact, um, it was first published in 2009, and uh, so it's just come out in the UK for the first time. Um, and it's about a young man who kind of keeps finding himself in the familiar narratives of black Americans and he, he struggles to escape these. Uh, and it's a really, I mean, it's a kind of utterly original novel, but it's also very similar in tone to some of the recent socially critical comedy of say Key and Peele or uh, Donald Glover's uh, series Atlanta. Yeah. Uh, so it has a really kind of contemporary feel, but also doing this really original and, and uh, interesting stuff around uh, race in America. Is his refusal to be pigeonholed, do you think that might account for his comparative lack of renown, particularly in, in the UK, I guess in America, he's, he's, he's better known than this because he's too literary to be a genre novelist um, uh, and therefore he's not known as a genre novelist or a, or a literary novelist. And he's sort of, because that he can't be categorized, people don't quite know where to, how to market him, how to push him, to whom to push him, and all of those sort of marketing problems, which is often what makes books successful or not successful. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's absolutely right. Um, I, and I think, you know, to, to add to that, there is, it is the case that Everett uh, has, um, has challenged his readers and has produced some novels that are difficult to read. And I'm, I'm thinking, and you know, I've, I've read most of the work and some of them are really taut, short, punchy novels that you can read in a day. And other ones are dense uh, and, you know, rich, replete with uh, allusions to obscure philosophy. Uh, and I'm thinking of a novel like Glyph um, from the early 2000s uh, about a kind of preternaturally uh, intellectual baby. Uh, and it's full of references to Derrida and things like that. Um, so, so I think some, some readers who have really enjoyed the Westerns and the more accessible texts maybe were put off some of the kind of more dense and challenging work. But I think you're absolutely right that like this this like really extraordinary divergence in the Everett canon has made him difficult to market. Um, maybe before you tell us about the new novel, Telephone, can you just fill us in on the there was a very particular trick surrounding its publication? I was commissioned to write this review and I uh, submitted my review and I got the proofs and I think everybody was quite pleased with it. And then I got a text from one of my colleagues, Andrew Frain, and he says in this text message, which version of Telephone did you review? <laughs> so I quickly <laughs> Googled this and the New York Times had just released this kind of secret uh, that Everett had um, Everett and his publishers, Grey Wolf, had shipped three different versions to retailers, reviewers, and prize committees. Um, and they had decided because of the pandemic that they were going to kind of let the cat out of the bag. But so, so yeah, there are three different versions of Telephone uh, and there is no designation as to which version is which. And if you go to the shop and buy it or in, in pandemic times, if you order it, there's no way of kind of deciding which version you want either. But what, what's the, what's what's the, the idea? Yeah, what's the idea? In, what, what's, the, what's the point of this? <laughs> well, I think he's interested in uh, readers and he's interested in, you know, the, the different experiences that different readers have. And I guess he's trying to kind of play with that and even exacerbate that. 
I wrote to Grey Wolf after this was revealed, and I said, you know, that I'm writing this review, and now that the cat's out of the bag, can I can I have a look at all three versions? They were, you know, very generous and sent me PDFs of the three versions, and I put them up on the computer side by side and did this kind of long spot the difference exercise. <laughs> well done, that's that, that's that's beyond the call of duty <laughs> really for a review. That's, 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 that's... It was pure fun, I assure you. And yeah. yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's, there's, a, there's a line that you mention in your review. Um, I think it's one of the characters that I think it might be the protagonist. In fact, Zachary says it. Uh, says it. He says uh, that people never look for truth; they look for satisfaction. I can't help but think. I wonder if publishing three novels has something to do with that idea. Like that, readers are very unlikely to have the satisfaction of the thing because they're not likely to read the three different novels. So it almost kind of is encouraging them to read on a more sentence by sentence specific way almost well i mean i I would say to that that i think i don't want to reveal anything about this experiment particularly because i think it's really interesting uh having said that i think that in terms of you know pagination uh, number of words on the page the differences aren't that great but what he's doing is something really interesting uh in terms of how we interpret and let me give you an example so In one small episode, in one of the versions, a character is stopped from doing this quite dramatic act. So in all three of the versions, uh, he intends to do this thing, but in one of the the three, he is, he is prevented from doing it. So there, there is a sense in which we can, you know, talk to other readers about how we're judging this character. Are we, are we judging him on his intentions or, because he's actually carried this act out. Uh, and it raises some really interesting philosophical questions. And there are three or four instances in the novel where, uh, you know, a subtle inflection or difference raises precisely that kind of question. And, and I think it's a, a really interesting um, and uh, bold uh, experiment. But having said that, I, and I'd be very eager to kind of to say that if you're just a reader who wants to read the novel and is not particularly interested in, you know, exploring all three versions, whichever version you pick up, it's a very satisfying book. Is it a, is it a, is it a genre novel? It's a multiple genre novel. Is that, is that true? It's quite similar to Everett's last novel, uh, Proper uh, So Much Blue, in that it operates on three different kind of genre modes. Um, but they they come together really nicely and they're kind of uh, threaded together through characterization and, and other devices. Um, so it's a campus novel, it's a domestic novel, and it's also a kind of borderland thriller uh, in its final movement. But it deals with, I mean, politics, how do, how do they sort of figure? It seems like they sort of, they're dealt with quite obliquely. They are. I mean, in some ways, it's very obviously kind of a Trump era novel. Um, you know, in, particularly in that last movement, which which plays out in the borderlands of uh, New Mexico and Texas. But it, it's also the protagonist is kind of um, he's facing a really kind of intense family crisis. And this family crisis, uh, which, you know, of course, means that he's looking inward and focusing on his uh, his partner and his daughter. Um, it also forces him to look outwards, and and that's where it's it's really interesting. The novel, I think, is that it explores the way that a very personal, private, individual family experience can resonate within the context of larger uh, political 
moments, I suppose. Wait, is this a good place to start with with him? Do you feel, or where, and if not here, where would you recommend when we're confronted, as I am, with thirty years of books? I think it is. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the thing about Everett is that he's always being discovered, and I discovered Everett only, you know, a few years ago uh, myself and. Uh, a friend of mine, Sam Thomas, uh, turned me on to Everett, and I just went through a kind of twelve-month period of voraciously consuming everything I could because I was, I was so kind of uh, smitten with his work. And I think that's a common experience for lots of people to be introduced and then to go on a binge through his catalog. But Telephone is a good starting point. It's really accessible and and readable, uh, but you know, yet still very rich and and compelling. The other ones I would point to, and I think probably his most famous work is Erasure, and a lot of people really love that book, and it's it's a great novel. Um, and then my, my personal favorite is actually his 2004 novel, Wounded, which is a Western. It's such a wonderful novel. I teach it, and I have the same um, experience every year when I teach it. The students are all kind of like, you know, who is this novelist that I've never heard about? This is the greatest thing. And they, they, re- they respond to it uh, more positively than anything else I teach. And um, that's, that well, sounds like a pretty good place to start. I think that's where you're going to start, isn't it, Stig, with the Western? Yeah, I love, I love it. Look, I think great genre writing is the best type of writing full stop. I think that's, the, that's, the, that's where I take most pleasure in the world. So your little mini seminar now, Aaron, has got a, a convert here already. <laughs> Uh, Aaron K, what a pleasure is uh, speaking to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Really grateful to be involved. Thanks. There is a joke, which I'm sure is apocryphal, about a tabloid editor who decided to fire the paper's astrologer in favour of someone cheaper. And he began the difficult conversation with, as I'm sure you already know, and that seems to epitomise astrology to me, pitched somewhere between a bit of a laugh and a bit of an embarrassment. Well, Lauren Castle this week reviews a book called A Scheme of Heaven, Astrology and the Birth of Science by Alexander Boxer, and says this in her review. Astrology is one of the oldest, most complex, intellectually powerful of sciences. The book itself seems worth talking about. It contains claims like, from 10,000 BC to 2019, there were 30,180,228 astrological moments. But so does that sentence from Lauren. And she should know she's a professor of history and philosophy of science and medicine at Cambridge and will finish a book on astrology this year. If the stars align, as her contributor notes says. I'm delighted to say that she joins Thea and me now. Lauren, Hello. Hello. Is the history of astrology that you're presumably writing and, and is contained in this book as well, a sort of a tale of superstition eventually being defeated by enlightenment thinking? Is that, is that the trajectory of the story? So that's a story that people like to tell about astrology. And it is sort of the story that is told in this book. And so what you, what you have folded into that story is, the question of what is astrology, what is superstition, and and what is the enlightenment, which are all sort of giant <laughs> yeah. topics. Where would you like me to begin? <laughs> could, you, could you just answer those three questions quickly, Laura, and then we could move on. That'd be lovely. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's fine. Um, no, but the the point is is that there is a story which is is about the rise and fall of astrology. Astrology was hugely important. Um, until from from classical antiquity, from a bit before classical antiquity, that's when it was systematized. And then um, 
you know, it, it, it thrives in, um, uh, in Greece and the Roman Empire. It gets elaborated on by Islamic scholars um, in the Middle Ages. And then um, uh, it, it, it's really, really vibrant in medieval and early modern Europe. And then it becomes something different. And so part of the issue with astrology is what it is. It's not just one thing, but the 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 hub the nub of it the really learned bits go through this trajectory and so one of the things that that people like to always try to explain is why does it fall why does it cease to become credible but one of the most important things to work out about or to understand about astrology is that it's always questioned the credibility of it the different it's picked apart and some bits of it are absolutely sound through most of history and some bits of it are always questioned so that that arc starts to fall apart as a big story once you start pulling it its different components and what are the bits that are sound because it, one of the things that you sort of suggest in, in the piece and i think this book suggests uh, as well is that there's a sort of mathematical basis to it there's there's a there's a there's a basis of scientific approach in its origins that is and was an intellectually sound piece of thinking. Yeah, so the, the physics of astrology are actually pretty sound. I can't believe I just said that. Um, <laughs> but we all will accept that the tides uh, are, are affected by the moon, right? Yeah. And so then the question becomes, how far do these distances hold, right? So when you look at the really complex um, motions of the stars and planets. So in this world that we're talking about, there are seven principal bodies that are moving through through the sky. It doesn't really matter whether the earth is at the center or the sun is at the center as, as came later. Your perspective is the perspective on earth. And you look at the, the sky and you see uh, this, this massive uh, rotation um, which is really, really complicated because of all the, the different distances. And of course, the rotation is going on even um, the motions are happening, even when the sun is out and you can't see them. So this is a hugely complicated uh, mathematical, observational science. Astronomy and astrology go together. So astronomy is the, the mathematical computations, the models, uh, the observations. And astrology is how those motions affect life on earth. So astrology goes backwards in time as well as forwards in time. And it's only certain bits of it that are predictive. Those bits are some of the more problematic bits. <laughs> but also when, you, when it gets applied to the fate of individuals, when it, it starts to, to challenge ideas of or interfere with notions of free will, uh, those those become very very problematic, particularly in a in a Christian context. And so, you, I mean, specifically, you're talking there about things like personal horoscopes. Exactly, um, horoscopes, and um, based on horoscopes, deciding when to do something particular—that's an election—or asking a particular question: "Who stole my dog?" Right? Those are really particular questions, which we're always challenged. There, there's another aspect, which is that sometimes 
when you when you do uh, when you use astrological symbols or when you in, invoke astrological principles, you're you're potentially aligning yourself with demonic forces. So it it's sometimes considered stupid and it's sometimes considered dangerous. But the underlying fact is that it's observing real things, which itself is has a scientific basis. It's really elaborate. It's it it and it and it produces these correlations right and that's where these 10 million different um astrological moments that um boxer computes and he does like a lot of number crunching and and he's really onto something there when when he says you know you, you astrology is like a giant data science um it 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 reads a bit like computational code and astrologers were always historians as well as they control time, right? They map time from the beginning going forward because this is, of course, the universe that God created. So it's supposed to move perfectly. They get into trouble because it doesn't behave as though it's moving perfectly because they didn't. That's part of what astronomers were, were always trying to work out is how the model really worked. Uh, is there a part of what you're, you're and I, I wonder if Alexander Boxall's book does the same thing do you feel that, that you have to be an advocate for this branch of science as you say it's often dismissed as a, as a pseudoscience do you need to find space for it in our thinking about the history of science do you need to sort of elbow people out of the way because they're constantly just wishing to dismiss it as, as a frippery rather than something that was a very central part of people's thinking for thousands of years is that part of what you have to do as a historian and what happens in this book as well i think you do have to take it seriously as a historian and i think there's a, a long tradition of historians of science and other historians either dismissing it as as fantastical or um or, or, or taking on it on board in it, its own terms. Something has changed in recent years because it used to be that I would always say, I mean, I don't believe in astrology. I don't, I don't, I don't read things that have to do with modern day astrology very much. It, it used to be that it really just was sort of tabloid, you know, horoscopes, what sign are you and, and, and all the rest. In about over the past decade or so, it's become much, much more serious. This is part of what I think Boxer's book does very interestingly, is he shows that um, if you are interested in a certain kind of geeky complexity, you can think with astrology. It's, it's as good a tool as many other things are. So his book is full of, of computational models that he's recreated of from historical astrological data. Um, and that, I think, is really interesting. But I get the sense that the book overall didn't work for you because you didn't find it was any more than that. So you sort of say it does do that, but perhaps needs to do more. It does. That. It does a really good job with, with taking astrology seriously and um, playing with the data. It's very clever. It's really lively in the way it's written. It's not written in a way it's kind of got a kind of muscular prose that isn't really my kind of thing and I don't do this kind of puzzles. But what, what I really did struggle with is that it, it doesn't engage with what other people have written about astrology. So it's a kind of pedantic academic claim, but it, it, it also then therefore asks the wrong questions 
because I don't think it's really interesting to think about whether astrology drove the scientific revolution and, and, the, and you know, is what brought us to modern science. I, I think there's a lot more in the history of astrology um, than that. So I felt like that was a kind of simplistic arc. This takes us back to the beginning that he hung the whole thing on. Uh, and that was just a little bit disappointing for me, but it's it's a really interesting read nonetheless. Well, you say uh, diplomatically, um, this is not the best or the worst book on the history of astrology. Um, so, I mean, which apart from your own book in progress, of course, um, which would you say is one of the best books on the history of astrology? If you really wanted to get a sense of, of the history of it, the importance of it without making overblown claims, you know, one way or another, where, where might one start? Well, there have been about 10 books published on the history of astrology in the, in the last 10 years, which is really interesting. And very few, if any of them, are um, by historians of science. So what you end up with is a bunch of very discreet, uh, very heavy studies. Um, a really good place to start is that Sophie Page wrote a lovely little book uh, that takes you through a bunch of astrological manuscripts, so beautifully illustrated manuscripts in the British Library, and it's called something like Astrology. Um, that's, a, that's a lovely place to start because it gives you a real framework for what astrology was historically. Mm. Um, but there isn't one book that I would go to right now um, to say this is the one that makes me really happy. And mine won't do it. I'm not, I'm not are you sure? Are you sure, are you sure, Laura? No, no, don't say, don't say that. I, I, I was thinking of that, that Disraeli quote: "Is that any time I want to read a book, I write one." Maybe you, you should say, you, you should say that, Laura. This is gonna, be, this is gonna be the book. Maybe, maybe it's, it's very, it's going to be very short. Yeah, maybe these aren't quite the right circumstances either to write this book or, or to talk about it. But uh, yeah, astrology is, uh, it's, it's a huge, huge subject, and I think part of what will be different about my book from what other people have done is that often they write about it from the top down from the either the the objections to it um, by theologians or to the um uh the kind of the defenders of it from some of the most learned astrologers that there were around and many of them were working at courts and so forth i tend to be focused on the kind of grubby practitioners and i and, and their clients and I, oh, that's a harder oh. story to get at. That's part of what I'm going to play with. Well, it sounds sounds very interesting. I don't I don't think we can end this conversation without just this one question I have to put to you. I'm afraid. Um, the winter solstice on December the twenty first, twenty twenty, when there will be a great conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter. Why why does that why does that come with a warning? Uh, there are great conjunctions of Saturn and Jupiter every 20 years or so, and according to the conjunctionist theory of history, which comes out of great Islamic scholar, those are the moments when uh, things change, bad things happen. Uh, and so that's what you always, this is a kind of sound kind of astrology. It's when you, you, you look to these particular conjunctions of, of powerful planets, and that's usually when you can chart when particular, there's a change of regime, there's a war, there's a famine, uh, or there's a great, a great plague. Oh, we've had that. <laughs> We're having that. <laughs> I think on that 
not optimistic note that whatever we think we're having now that in in, in six months time it's going to get a lot worse uh, 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 Lauren Castle thank you so much for joining us okay thank you guys thank you that's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Aaron Keeble, Lauren Castle and Hirsch Sawney. Make sure you're getting the paper. We have a wonderful series of critical encounters with figures from American 20th century literature. Robert Lowell and Elizabeth Hardwick, James Baldwin and William Buckley Jr., Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston. Next week, we're in the realm of children's literature, which should be fun. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.